0: With the unalterable force of Greek tragedy, big business moves from misunderstanding to quarrel, to spat, to fight, to battle, to campaign, to war, to Armageddon. Its comedy is wild, yet so deep is its understanding of man's foolish ferocity, and so firm its contact with logic and reality, that it leaves the spectator with the uneasy feeling that not only could all this happen, it could happen to him.
1: Listening to the Laurel and Hardy podcast, and this is episode thirty-one. I'm your host, Patrick Vasey, the author of the forthcoming book Laurel and Hardy: Silence. And on today's show, we complete our deep dive into Stan and Babe's 1929 masterpiece, Big Business. On the previous show, episode 30, Randy Skretvet and I discussed the film and also covered the mythology surrounding a couple of famous or infamous legends connected to the production, primarily Hal Roach's much-related tale that the wrong house was destroyed in error. Now, Randy sided with Stan Laurel and thought that that Hal story was a load of baloney. So on today's show, I'm delighted to welcome back film historian and expert on the Hal Roach Studios, Richard W. Ban. And Richard will cover all of this and more as we attempt to put this argument to bed once and for all. But, before we do, I have a couple of things to pass on. Uh, Firstly, I've been trying for a while to get these podcast episodes in sync with the number of the films they cover. So, for instance, this episode is episode 31, and we're now looking at film number 31, the 31st film Stan and Babe made together. So from now on, each regular episode will have the same number as the number film made by the boys. Not that it matters, it's just something that I've been trying to do for a while. Um, secondly, a big thank you to Thubbs for the five-star rating and for leaving the following review. And Thubs says, Superb podcast, five stars. If you think you know Laurel and Hardy, think again. This sublime podcast features expert analysis, behind-the-scenes info, and much, much more. Patrick delivers a fantastic podcast week after week. If you're remotely interested in the boys, then this is definitely worth a listen. Uh, So thank you so much, Thubs. Now, on the last episode, Randy dropped many hints uh, during our discussions about some restored versions of the Laurel and Hardy silent films that would be becoming available soon. Now unfortunately Randy couldn't reveal much more than that at the time, uh, but since the episode came out we have had confirmation of an exciting new Blu-ray release scheduled for release in July, which will feature all of the Boys Silent films together from 1921 through to 1927, all beautifully restored and looking incredible. Uh, Oh and I've had a sneak preview of the quality of one of these films and let's just say my jaw is still on the floor. Uh, The set is produced by Serge Bromberg and is being released through Flickr Alley, uh, and my copy is already on pre-order. I will be producing a special bonus episode of this podcast next month where I'll be chatting with Serge Bromberg um, and getting the lowdown on this very exciting project. Can't wait for that. Uh, Serge will also be contributing uh, an, uh, an article about the set in this summer's issue of the Laurel and Hardy magazine too, so look out for that. Um, Speaking of the magazine, the summer issue is now on its way to completion. Uh, Randy Screpvet is contributing an exclusive essay on his favourite of the boys' shorts, Helpmates. Um, So make sure you don't miss that by subscribing to the magazine over at laurelandhardyfilms.com. And finally, as I mentioned last time, I have, in the past couple of weeks, launched the Laurel and Hardy podcast's Patreon page. Um, If you're not aware, Patreon is a place where you are able to practically support your favorite creative projects, uh, such as podcasts, um, and keep them going. Um, And in return, you will receive exclusive benefits, um, and only for a small few dollars, euros, or uh, pounds, of course. Um, So I've set up two tiers of support for this podcast. Uh, The basic level gives you access to all of the exclusive podcast episodes that I post on there. Uh, They're not available anywhere else. Uh, And the second tier also gives you access to that, uh, plus also a number of other benefits, like a gift subscription to the Laurel and Hardy magazine, um, and invitations to participate in future Q&A sessions with our guest experts, uh, to name but two. So a huge thank you to those of you who have already signed up and become patrons of the podcast. Uh, That's Anthony Arthur, Daniel Malise... Uh, Michael, I don't have your surname of voice You, Michael. Uh, Daniel Hurd, Michael Fitzpatrick, Karen Owen, Alistair Gray and Frank Labrador. Thank you so much, guys.
0: A thousand thanks.
1: And as patrons, they are now able to access the exclusive video episode, which I've posted recently, uh, in which I interview actor Jeffrey Wiseman, all about his love for Laurel and Hardy and his experience playing Stan Laurel at Universal Studios and all around the world at various events. There's also a bonus audio segment available right now with Steve Massa, uh, where I ask him which films he would banish to Bogeyland. And the latest post, which I've just put up, uh, is 30 extra minutes with Randy Scrapvet, uh, which didn't make the final edit of episode 30. Um, and there are some fascinating tangents to explore on there. Now, producing a quality podcast is no easy feat, and especially when I work full-time, I have a young family, I'm writing three books, I'm the editor of the magazine as well, so I have to say, your support as a patron of this show goes a long, long way in ensuring that I'm able to keep the wheels turning and keep this podcast going too. So if you'd like to, or are able to, show your support, please do visit patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Laurel and Hardy Podcast. Right, on with today's show. To complete our look at big business and to provide the other half of the argument about whether the wrong house was destroyed during the production of the film, today's guest is Richard W. Ban. <laughs> I'm thrilled to say that here with me today for this part of our deep dive into what is arguably Laurel and Hardy's finest silent comedy, big business, is the world's leading expert in the Hal Roach Studios, its returning guest, film historian, extraordinaire, and friend of the podcast, it's Richard W. Bann. So welcome back to the podcast, Richard.
2: Hi, Patrick. I'm happy to be here. Always happy to talk about Laurel and Hardy and Hal Roach Studios. I've got got some tea. I celebrated St. Patrick's Day. I listened to the chorus. I'm all ready to go. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> you had to plug the cause, yeah. I love it. Okay, um, fantastic. So, uh, yeah, we've we've spoken in the past, uh, Richard, about possible films that you would like to speak about on the show, and straight away you said big business. So, um, what is equally special about that for me is that it was over this particular film. I think I've mentioned this to you once before, and I, I know you didn't remember it, um, but I certainly did. This was the this was the film that we actually had our very first correspondence over. Um, in 2018 and it was it was a little heated at the time uh, because I wrote my first essay my first blog on big business uh, and I'd written about certain facts in inverted commas that I thought were 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 right uh, associated with this film and you'll know what I'm talking about I'm sure Um, and you were very quick to correct me in no uncertain terms, <laughs> um, which, which was great. And we we had quite a heated um, debate about it at the time. Um, and yeah, I was fuming. I could tell you were fuming. Uh, but we, we very quickly got to the right place. And uh, you, you passed me on some information that I wasn't aware of. Um, and we we ended friends, and that was nice. And from there on in, it's just got better and better. So uh, this has come full circle with me now, for, for, with our with our relationship.
0: So no more arguments from now on. No more arguments. That's right. Isn't it silly? Yeah, sure.
2: I didn't remember that, but you refresh my recollection. And the reason I didn't remember is that I've I've had this exchange with so many friends and fans over the years. It, it all blurs together and uh that's that's one thing i i do want to talk about
1: yes well we, we will get on to all of that so um i know you you have a lot that you want to uh to impart your wisdom which is which is great and i can't wait to hear what you've got to say about big business um because it is it is a fabulous short wonderful reputation um so um so what can you tell us about big business richard what, well, what, have you... well
2: I, what, what i'd like to do is touch on some few considerations or or, or tidbits. I know you're, you're, you're talking to Randy about this as well, and I, I'm, I'm guessing that these are things that he is not addressing in in his treatise. I'm sure he'll do the important stuff. So, just supplemental stuff here. That's how I regard what I what I want to cover. Yeah. And I made I made a list of six things to go over. Otherwise, we can talk about a great short short subject like this forever, right? Yeah. I, Bill Everton called it the the funniest two reels on film, though Though in the Blu-ray audio commentary for, for Battle of the Century, I made the case for that being the apotheosis of all comedy short subjects. And when I was done, I, I felt like a, a prosecuting attorney, including his final argument before the court. And I think I would have won that case. But in fact, uh, I, 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 I will concede that the big business is, is better and funnier. And won't you agree that it is?
1: Yes, I think I would agree with that, yeah. And it's complete. We can see it all, which battle we can't see at all yet.
2: right. And And here is one unimpeachable endorsement I'd like to share. And no less than than George, George Stevens, and he's a big favorite director of mine. And I, I will say for those who don't know George Stevens' work, uh, of course he was he worked at Hal Road Studios for a decade. He was the the cinematographer on most of their silent shorts. He directed the best Tracy Hepburn, Woman of the Year, the best musical ever made with Astaire Rogers, swing Time, the best adventure film ever made, Ganga Din, and the second best Western ever made, Shane. And he said about Big Business, quote, it was one of the 10 great comedy films of history, end quote. And he said also that both Two Tars and Big Business contain more laughs per foot than anything Chaplin ever did.
0: Isn't that a pip? It certainly is.
2: That's a pretty, pretty high endorsement from someone that that you have to really respect. So anyway, the the first item of the six I'd like to go over is a Stan Laurel letter. It's not mentioned in Randy's fine book, nor nor does does it appear in the good. Letters from Stan website and oh, okay. we both highly endorse both of those, both Randy's book and and that website. Yes, absolutely. And this this letter is addressed to Gene Davidson in Ohio on April twenty fifth, nineteen sixty three, in which he says, and incidentally, I, I quote this ex excerpt in the uh, Big Men of War essay you will be publishing. Oh,
1: right, okay.
2: In which he says, yes. That is correct about Jimmy Finlayson knocking himself out in the film Big Business. It was not left in the finished picture as when that happened, the camera and everybody stopped to help Jimmy. It was so unexpected, took everyone by surprise, including poor Jimmy himself. He was more surprised than anybody. That was a standing laugh amongst us for many years after it was so funny, end quote. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's <was> so funny. <laughs> the,
2: the letter to Stan, which prompted that reply, was following up on, on the reference made by Jack McCabe and Mr. Laurel and Hardy to the scene where the two salesmen are talking to Phyllis in his doorway, and he says to the crew before they, they, they turn the camera, quote, let me let me go, boys, stand back, men. And then he tries to do this magnificent uh, uh, fadeaway double take, but he snapped his head back, and hit the brick portal of the doorway, Oof. and he was knocked out cold. So I I think we all need to watch what both uh, leads up to and comes after that scene in order to see what, if anything, we can glean about his condition there, because he'd been knocked out.
0: What are you trying to do? Make me out a bigger fool than I look, than I am.
2: So, okay, so that's number one. <laughs> number two. We don't see the first potential customer for Christmas trees, just uh, the hammer that he or she swings from inside, indicating disinterest. But the second one is Lyle Tail, who also has no interest. Ollie suggests her husband might want one. No, she smiles being coy. She has no husband. Stan interjects with his own uh, big business sales pitch. I think he says... If you had a husband, would he buy <laughs> one? So, so that's so that's Lyle tale. Now, incredibly, more than half a century ago, lo- long time ago, dear, dear God, when I first identified all these people, not named Finlayson Hall or May Bush or Thelma Todd, who appeared in these Howl Roach comedies, and, and, and by the way, back then, nobody cared, <laughs> which I find to be an irony. And I've talked about this with Dave Lord Heath for his, great website. Uh, Nobody cared one whit when I'd excitedly share the news, expecting people would uh, find this at least worthwhile, that I'd identified marginal actors like Sam Lufkin and Jack Hill. Nobody knew who they were, and and nobody anywhere knew or or shared any interest as to even what their names were. But I I worked so hard on this, and one by one, working from, from scratch, I got them all except for Estella Terre, and Hayes Robertson, if you know who they are. And those discoveries came way after the 1960s and early 1970s. Now, back then, this really was the dark ages. We didn't didn't have the research tools available today. No internet, no IMDb, no DVDs, no lantern. There were only a couple of books, and some of them weren't so good, and some 16-millimeter prints. You could go to Lincoln Center in New York but the Academy Library in in L.A., or you could call people on the phone, which is something that I did a lot of. Um, But as I say, it seems like the the Dark Ages by by comparison. And P.S., I can add one more name to the big business cast list that that I never knew until recently. There's a balding old man you see as part of the neighborhood crowd. Uh, He didn't work that much, always in small parts such as... um, uh, The Edel Class and The Circus with Chaplin. I've got a list here. Boys Will Be Joys with Our Gang, Spite Marriage with Keaton, Movie Crazy with Harold Lloyd, Good Scout Buster, which I just screened for the Buster Brown series. The guy's name is Hugh Saxon. So I I need to share that with with Lord Heath for his sterling website. By the way, have you seen that website?
1: Oh, I have. Yes, many times.
2: Uh, Amazing. So... All kudos to Dave. That's fabulous. So anyway, uh, so everyone takes all this for granted. Everyone knows all these people almost like uh, friends or relatives. I mean, aren't they? Yeah. But back back then, no one knew their names and no one cared either. I always found that curious.
1: How did you How did you find them, Richard? Is this from sort of interviewing alumni and showing them photographs and and asking them, or how did you actually identify these obscure people?
2: I, I use sources like period casting directories, studio documents when I could get them. Right. Um, because I was already connected to, to Hal Roach Studios go, going way back. So call sheets were really helpful if I could find them. Right. And But the most important thing was talking to, and you can't do this now, Hal Roach Studios uh, alumni who shared what they could remember. And, and a lot of the time, their memories weren't so good And, Patrick, that happens when you get older, which I am finding out about. (laughs) But it was one of them who told me who Lyle Taylor was, and I can't remember. So, again, here is my poor memory. I can't remember who ID'd her for me. It was maybe Joe Cobb, Gordon Douglas, Lou Foster, Bob Davis. They they were pretty good. Whoever it was, he pronounced her name. He said the name, Lyle Taylor like the ubiquitous character actor Lyle Talbot spelled and sounding the same L Y L E Lyle not Lily why yeah. should a name spelled the same like that be pronounced differently as a, as a function of gender plus it never occurred to me that someone who worked with her would mispronounce her name yes <laughs> That's and, funny. And, and 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 using her name in conversation with Hal Roach Studios alumni no one ever corrected me and said oh no it's Lily not Lyle but for some reason however uh, in, in, in recent times, people have been saying that her name is Lily, based on what, I wonder, that, that that Lyle is just a man's name. I have no idea how that got started, but it's wrong. And there's an entertaining Pitts Todd or Todd Pitt short called Red Noses, 1932. And you hear Blanche Payson pronounce her name. And again, it's Lyle, not Lily, Lyle. There's the proof. Lyle right. rhymes with smile. I could have identified Lyle Tao in the 1960s or 70s had I been able to see the first Hal Roach film that both Laurel and Hardy worked on together, which was, you want to guess? Yes, yes. that's no, no.
1: no, of course it I'm is. Not. Stupid boy. Yes, of course it is.
2: And, and Laurel was the co-director and Hardy was the actor. Now Lyle Tao receives her only screen billing that I know of in this wow. short by way of a text title. In fact, she has the film's title role as nanette and and uh, in, in randy's book i didn't know this i never researched it but in randy's book it says that she died at age 82 in 1971 and sadly no one got to her for an interview or or, wow. or to express to her how much people like sh- her added uh to the approximately 50 movies that uh she made at, at hal roach studios <coughs> So then, <clears throat> number three. See, we're moving right along here. <laughs> so so there is a supposed controversy around the question. Are they selling Christmas trees in July <laughs> or Christmas time? Now, what do you think? And I'll tell you what I think. Uh,
1: well, I'd, I yeah, I used to think they were selling it in, in summertime, in July. And I don't know where that's come from. But I I, I know now that it's actually at Christmas time. It was It was shot in Christmas week, wasn't it?
2: And we yes, and we shouldn't care really. E- either way, it's it's funny. Yeah. The tech title says only selling Christmas trees in California. And as you've just said, uh, they actually filmed in December 1928, right at Christmas time. However, both Stan Laurel and Bill Everson, two pretty solid sources, have said the summer or yeah. July. But yeah. if I had to pick a side and prosecute the, the case for it, I'd say the setting is Christmas time because. The boys are wearing gloves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, winter coats. And I, I live here, and I guarantee no one in L.A. is wearing any kind of a coat in July.
1: <laughs> that's right.
2: And, and at one point they asked, "Can we take your order for next year?" If it were July, you'd be soliciting orders on a return trip in December, not quote next year. Of course you wouldn't you would. ask a question like that in in July. No. So that's uh, uh, that, that's uh, dispositive of the question, in in my opinion and and oh one more thing and at the end when stan hands a cigar to Finlayson, he says to him merry christmas so i i'd say that people who think it's july have never been to southern california in december when it looks like july right right so okay so then number four
0: so far so good it wasn't so far it wasn't so
2: I want to say something about the physical film elements. Okay. We we should be so lucky with respect to hats off as we've been with big business. It's their best silent film and we have had the most and best 35 millimeter preprint for it, which has all been just pristine. Now, Randy probably has or will tell you he bought a beautiful 35 millimeter print of big business on, on eBay. And he doesn't even collect film. Well, Except back in the day, he, he bought uh eight millimeter Laurel and Hardy films. I know that. Yeah. But so we get, we get so, so lucky with respect to big business that a 35 millimeter print turns up on a, on eBay of all places. <laughs> now we did our film restoration and preservation on this title for Munich in 1994. And we worked from one of the two camera negatives, which by that time had, and I didn't remember that, but I I I, I pulled out my QC report on on this when we did this work. Uh, it had four short higher generation replacement sections that were spotted throughout. And uh, w- we commissioned a great Wurlitzer organ score by Gaylord Carter for it too. It and as I said, I dug out in my QC report on this, and I wrote at the time that this was this may be the best-looking, 35 millimeter fine grain master that we had seen so far anywhere in the Hal Roach Library. Wow! Now I'm not sure if we had the the I just don't remember if we had the domestic, or the export camera. Neg, and mm. and you know there are differences.
1: Yeah.
2: In 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 the positions of the camera and how long the takes last, etc. But one of them wound up at the ucla film and television archive and i remember the day in 2008 when my friend jerry goulden over there had to terminate the life of one of them one of these two camera negatives because it was so far gone to nitrate deterioration it could have been the one that we had used in 1994 i just don't know right, but now okay. think, think of this one minute You're holding that precious relic in your hand, something that was right there, only a few feet away from Laurel and Hardy and Finlayson as they performed their work during during the Christmas season of 1928. That's how old this was, something that had been loaded into the camera by either George Stevens or Jack Roach, uh, which this relic had survived about eight decades. And the next minute you submerge it in water, we're holding services for it. And the original camera negative is gone. It's yeah. gone, and it's as bad as somebody dying, you know? And I remember Jerry told me about this and how bad he felt that he had to do this. Yeah. And there are two characters, their there failed stewardship, uh, that we have to, to blame for this. And Russell Babbage has met one of them, maybe both of them. But as, as Mr. Hardy says in their first mistake, well, we won't go into that. <laughs> yeah. We won't go into that. Better left unsaid. So number five. My mother told me one time, you know, if you can't say something nice. Don't say anything at all. So I'm not going to say anything. So number five, the big business house location. Yeah. Well, first, um, have you and I ever discussed where I have lunch every uh, Tuesday and why? Have we discussed that?
1: Uh, I think you may have mentioned it once or twice. Okay. Do you, Is do you, it the Culver call, the call Hotel we're talking about?
2: You are correct, sir. Now, do you, do you next question. <laughs> do you know who Chuck McCann was? Uh, yes. For those who don't, Chuck McCann, there are no prizes for correct answers, Patrick, but you're doing very <laughs> well so far. <laughs> Chuck McCann was an actor who started out as a kid show host running Laurel and Hardy movies on early TV over New York television. Before he got into movies himself, Chuck did some famous TV commercials. I don't, they probably didn't play in, in the UK, but they're no. very big here. Everybody saw these commercials. And he was also a voice actor. Now, I, ironically, this voice actor just missed an Oscar nomination for playing a mute in a film called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter in 1968. Chuck was always calling Stan Laurel on the phone, the 1950s and 1960s. Wow. And, and visiting him when Chuck was working on movies or television in, in L.A. And Stan Laurel put Chuck McCann together with Jim McGeorge. He was the one who put them together. And the two formed a longstanding Laurel and Hardy partnership doing impressions of our heroes for commercials, TV shows, personal appearances. Well, Chuck lived in Queens Village, New York, And he lived four doors away from Al Kilgore, who was also regularly phoning Stan. Now, this was around 1960. But Chuck and Al did not know each other. Now, this is such an odd coincidence.
0: Mm.
2: When at last they met and learned what they had in common, they teamed up with Jack McCabe, and they then, with two or three others, formed the Sons of the Desert to propagate the spirit and genius of Laurel and Hardy and the rest is history. And the magnificent caricatures that Al Kilgore drew Hmm. of Laurel and Hardy, which you see on Jack McCabe's original Laurel and Hardy biography, were actually created for Chuck McCann's WPIX-TV show called Laurel and Hardy and Chuck. So fast forward to um, about the year 2000 when uh, Chuck and I had both, long before, moved from New York to Los Angeles. Now, we, we were seeing each other five nights a week at the Playboy mansion when i i learned about gentrification going on in Culver City which had become run down the, the city landmark which you just mentioned the Culver Hotel where the, where they shot so many silent hal Roach comedies had fallen on hard times and it was in danger of being torn down wow. but then in 2006 new owners came to the rescue they reopened the Culver Hotel it was two sisters and their mother and When I found this out, I wanted to support the place. Now, today, it's a beautiful, high-end, expensive boutique hotel again. So I I said to Chuck in 2006, we should have lunch there on on days when we weren't at the Playboy Mansion. And why? Uh, Of course, we all know the answer. Because of all the Hal Roach comedies that were made right there surrounding the place. And because, for true believers uh, like we are, Patrick, uh, history speaks to us there. Yeah, yeah. So we told friends, and, and I think you recognize a lot of the names who've joined us every Tuesday or Wednesday for the last 18 years. I think it was 18 years now, uh, including some of your own countrymen like Russell and Kevin Brownlow. Um, who else? Um, your countrymen. The daughter of one of your countrymen, Lois Laurel. Yeah. The ho- whole area there has made a comeback because of all the uh, tech giants that have moved in Amazon, Netflix. Erecting giant new studios to produce programming content for the cable networks and the and the streaming services. Now one day <clears throat> we were dining and, and at the next table in the Culver Hotel. I turned and I looked and I saw the richest man in the world. Now you know who that would be?
1: Um I could hazard a guess, but do tell me.
2: Okay. No one else recognized him. He was Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon. Oh,
1: okay, okay, fine. Now,
2: he, he just signed a long-term lease on the old Ince lot, the third of the city's, Culver City's original three studios on Washington Boulevard from, from more than a century ago. Hal Roach Studios, then Thomas Ince, then Triangle, which quickly became Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Hmm. Now, when Ince died so young, I think in 1924, when the Culver Hotel was first erected, that lot, which was right next to the Culver Hotel, became Cecil B. DeMills, then Pathé, then RKO Pathé, then David Selznick, then Lu, then MTM for Mary Tyler Moore, then two or three other places that I can't remember, and then Sony. And now uh, Jeff Bezos' Amazon has redone everything on that lot except for the Colonial Administration Building, which looks just like Hal Roach Studios did. Oh, wow. And They can't tamper with it. And, and, and you see this colonial administration building at the start of Gone with the Wind and every uh, Selznick picture. And it's right outside the Culver Hotel, right there. King Kong was, was made on that, on the inslot, And it's just an eight iron shot away f- from, from the site of, of Hal Roach Studios also. Now the point of all this is how I get there for lunch every week. I can take two routes. One is identical to the way Hal Roach drove to his studio every day because I asked him about it once. (laughs) I wanted to know how he drove to the studio. So on that route from uh, his home, 610 Beverly Drive, um, Hal Hal would go south on Robertson Boulevard, which takes you right by what once was the access road to the Arnez Ranch. Oh, yeah. a.k.a. the Roach Ranchero, where so many comedy classics like The Hooskow, Teacher's Pet, Toad in a Hole were shot, scenes from way out west, Uh, but usually I I take a different route. Now, the big business house was built in the year of our Lord, 1925, and owned by William H. Terhune, longtime studio employee, primarily as a film editor, but he directed a few shorts, he served as the unit manager for Way Out West, He did a lot of things there. He was there a long time. But in 1929, Terhune was renting out that property. His actual residence was elsewhere. I can't remember where, but I do know that in 1930 or 31, um, while still owning the big business house, he moved and was actually living on, on Doheny Drive in Beverly Hills. Now, not far north of there, I also live on Doheny Drive, and further north up the hill toward Sunset Boulevard was where Marilyn Monroe lived on Doheny. In fact, twice, twice during her life, she lived there. Right. So, so to get to Culver City, the other route I can drive from Beverly Hills, I take Doheny past Edgar Kennedy's residence, hmm. past Virginia Ruth Laurel's apartment house, which has been torn down, but where it was, and where she had Joe Rock as, as a tenant in that apartment house. Oh, wow. but to, to Pico I turn right, on to Pico until I'm at the 20th Century Fox lot, where I turn left, onto Motor Avenue. Now, have you ever heard of Motor Avenue?
1: I've heard of it, yeah.
2: Okay, Motor Avenue is a very important part of Laurel and Hardy history, and Hal wrote Studio's history. Uh, it, it's where Bob McGowan shot so many R-gang comedies on location. A motor runs only a few miles to connect Fox to MGM, which Fox bought briefly in 1929. M- mm. Fox bought MGM, uh, which which news story I, I cover in in the forthcoming uh, Men of War monograph. A motor goes through Cheviot Hills, then through Palms. Passed the Should Married Men Go Home House to Culver City and MGM. And um, uh, uh, Patrick, are you a Three Stooges fan by, by chance? I
1: can't say that I am. Okay.
2: Okay. So, for those for those out there who are, <laughs> one of their best films, as Leonard Malton, who is a big Three Stooges fan, as Leonard Malton will confirm, was The Three Little Beers, 1935. And in that film, they drive a truck with a mountain of beer kegs, beer barrels, and they're right on Motor Avenue toward, toward the then new, brand new, 20th Century Fox lot. And on the left is, is the Rancho Park golf course where they stage uh, the golf scenes, where they tear up the, the golf course. So anyway, mm-hmm. so that's Motor Avenue. Then, then you get to Cheviot Hills, which is a beautiful upscale West Side neighborhood community. Now, many of the higher paid Hal Roach Studio staff members built homes there because the area was brand new and so close to the studio. And also because, because of that proximity, many films were shot in that area. So, as I drive the length of Motor Avenue twice a week, I always acknowledge the lots, the homes where Stan Laurel lived. I go right by his house. And where the finishing touch in bacon grabbers, which was the home of Elmer Regus, as you know, I'm sure, yeah. yep. were filmed. I, I can see them as I drive. Always makes me smile as I pass each one. Like and, and I, and I figuratively uh, genuflect in, in my car. As, as and and they, so they were all these these homes and these lots were all really close together. It's all built up now. But as you watch the films that were shot there, you see nothing but but wide open spaces yeah so halfway through motor after i pass the 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 places i just mentioned i come to the street uh called dunlear now if i turn right and go west one block down i can visit the home of matt o'brien at 103 80 dunlear but who is matt o'brien you ask you ask that don't you patrick i
1: do ask that i was just just about to say who who is matt o'brien richard
2: (laughs) very good (laughs) glad you're playing along here So so so, uh, Matt O'Brien he kept a low profile at Hal Roach Studios. He was a boyhood friend of Hal Roach back in Elmira. All oh, right. In the 1930s, though, he was a studio vice president. He was the general manager and secretary treasurer of the company. Oh. And right right near Matt O'Brien's house, at 10348 Dunlear was the big beautiful home of H M Walker. All right. Then if you come back to motor and you cross it, the homes on the other side of Dunleer, driving east, are much less palatial, more like bungalows. Now, three doors down is 10281 Dunleer, though it's only number 281 in the film, and it was owned by, as we said, uh, William Terhune, Hmm. but rented out to someone named Taylor um, in 1929. And I, oh, and I have, um, I have some of the big business casting call sheets and a peggy taylor is listed on one of them i've never tried to investigate who she was but uh she she must have been she could have been the owner or the wife of the owner or the daughter i don't know but she she appears in the film so so then if you continue along dunleer heading east you get just one block you would get to a street parallel to motor called queensbury by the middle 1930s, only a block away and one down from the big business house was 3151 Queensbury at a street called Bannockburn, the street where Elmer Regus lived. But 3151 Queensbury, if you follow this, and you probably can't, but nevertheless, here's the big payoff. 3151 Queensbury was the residence of Buster Keaton after oh, wow. he was forced out of MGM, and I think he was there for, for a decade during the 1930s. He wasn't there in 1929, but shortly thereafter, right. when he was expelled by, by Louis B. Mayer from, from Metro, that's where he bought his house. Um, and in one of the long shots, you might even be able to see this house in the film if you know what you're looking for.
1: Right.
2: Now, in, in more recent times, only a little northeast and just behind the big business house was the home until recently of the late Ray Bradbury, the celebrated screenwriter and novelist of things like um, Fahrenheit 451, which was the, which was um, it was first serialized before the landmark uh, novel was published, and, and then in 1966, uh, uh, Francois Truffaut uh, adapted the the book as as his famous film Fahrenheit 451 but now, now this is this is hard to believe especially in LA but but Bradbury never learned to drive a car i don't know how you can live here and not drive a car but he did and as a kid he roller skated all over hollywood getting autographs from movie stars and his favorites number 1 favorites were laurel and hardy right. about, <clears throat> about about whom he wrote poems and short stories even late in his long life and one of them was about uh the the music box steps and the way out west tent uh gave him their lifetime achievement award at one of their banquets here and bob satterfield knew ray bradbury and says he was well aware of where his beautiful home was situated with respect to laurel and hardy history and that he he loved it being so close to 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 the magic associated with the big business house i i just think that's a neat thing
1: yeah yeah.
2: Now the lady who owns the big business house today. Uh, she knows that her house is still, e- even now, re- resting from the attack that orgy of of uh, recriminations almost a century ago, and, and she sees people who drive by or or, or stand and stare stare at home, and she knows what they're there for.
1: Yeah.
2: If you go there in person, and I think Russell has been there, and and. I'm sure you look forward to the day when oh, you yes. look at this <clears throat> yeah. You get a you get a sense of the place you don't realize watching the film. The street mm. slopes down as you pass the house, and the same behind it. And there's a standalone garage back there, equivalent to where the basement would be. But of course, bungalows like this one we don't have basements in Southern California. And any scene you are watching, you can tell what time of day that. George Stevens and Jack Roach were shooting it based on where the shadows are. If they slant to the right, filming was taking place in the afternoon. To the left means morning scenes. Now, Bob Satterfield, I always say this, he's, he, he's the guy who's done more for Hal Roach Studios alumni on both sides of the camera and, and b- both before and after they died than, than anyone. He's the one who discovered the big business house, and he did it the hard way, the hard way, long time ago. George Stevens was the one who gave Bob the tip he needed on where to find this house, saying that it was somewhere just off motor, and that Stevens would pause and think fondly about making big business every time he drove by. And of course, a big director Hmm. like Stevens uh, would be going back and forth between places like uh, 20th Century Fox and MGM. Yeah. So so this was more than 50 years ago that, that Bob got that tip from Stevens. And with only that clue, this is the way Bob did this. He just drove around and around and around looking at random houses with frame grabs from the film that he, he may have gotten off TV, the TV screen <laughs> until he found it. So 102.81, though, though the film is mentioned, um the, the the house number that they pry off is the shortened two-weight one but can you imagine how he felt on that day all of a sudden he's standing there and he says there it is the there big it guy. is now, now bill terhune left um roach for mgm down the street in 1939 and at, at metro he cut he was the uh, editor on at the circus for the marx brothers but then He suffered a heart attack in 1940, and he died in the big business home.
0: And I saw
2: saw Hal Roach's draft of the sympathy letter that he sent to Terhune's widow, Patricia Terhune, and her husband was only 41 years of age.
1: Oh, good grief.
2: So finally, a controversy concerning the great story Hal Roach would tell about big business. Now, there's your truth, my truth, and the objective truth. All all I can do is explain what I know. If I I prosecute the case that two plus four equals six and you say, no, it's nine, uh, there's nothing more I I can say.
1: It's not my job to to argue or to... I'm just interested. Do tell. I love I just love this. The story is a brilliant story.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, So... Uh, you see but I promise
1: th- you, we're not going to fall out this time.
2: No, 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 <laughs> no. Uh, you, you see the same set of facts, or you may see the same, well, we often, all, all of us, we may see the same set of facts through a different prism, yeah. um, although you, people have to understand all the facts clearly t- to begin with. So w- whatever the outcome, in any kind of a controversy, people are going to believe what they want to believe. So again, I can only offer what I know. I've been explaining the big business story for years, thinking everyone must know the background information by now. That's that's necessary to understand this. To under, understanding is the key word here. But but they don't, and so as as Wilfred Lucas laments, in Pardon Us, and
1: still they can <laughs> So
2: so here it goes again.
0: Tell me that again.
2: Certainly. So. Hal Roach told this story all over, on film for Kevin Brownlow, on TV for Les Crane, and other TV talk shows. At the Berlin Film Festival when he was
0: 100, I was there all over for years, for decades. Well, just very quickly, uh, they were uh, were selling Christmas trees in the summertime, and we needed a bungalow. And one of the boys working at the studio had a bungalow close to the studio the the location man went over and made a picture of the house and showed it to the director he okayed the house and uh uh, we said we were going to wreck your house but we would put it back and pay you so much money well what actually happened on the way to the the house uh the director who had the picture in his hand he saw the house and he said here it is stop!" so they all there about five or six cars with trucks stopped and there's the house and, um, and uh, the first the director, the assistant director says the key doesn't work and uh, the, the director said, never mind, we're going to break the door down anyway, break the door down. So they did. Well, they completely wrecked this house in two weeks. They broke every window, they cut down every tree, they cut down every bush, they wrecked everything there was about the house and the last day a man and wife and two kids drove up in front of the house. The woman almost fainted, and we had the wrong house. The other <laughs> house was blocked away.
2: Then in a few letters, uh, Stan Laurel responded to fans and, and said, no, he's wrong. The story is not true. That
0: was a lot of baloney. What does he think, we were a bunch of nuts or something? Nothing to it. He wasn't even in town when we made that picture guy that the house belonged to worked at the studio. In fact, there in the afternoon, we went in at
2: coffee breaks with him and his wife. Ridiculous. So I ask, why do fans who weren't there and I wasn't there, who only know some of the facts, automatically believe Stan Laurel and not Hal Roach? Then they praise Stan Laurel and they castigate Hal Roach. Why is that? And why is is Stan Laurel's memory presumed to be better than Hal Roach's? Always puzzled me, and I get so frustrated over this. And I touch on it for for the Men of War monograph insofar as how most people—this may be the the answer—most people dislike their own boss, mm-hmm. and they project, they transfer this animosity onto all bosses, including by definition Hal Roach because he owned the studio. It's it's the lovable underpaid. Except he never was underpaid. But let's suppose he is underpaid, underdog actor against the big, powerful producer, the boss Scrooge, who must be wrong. <laughs> uh, it it's the meek versus the strong, supposedly. But let's <clears throat> this this may help, or or may just make people mad. I don't know. But consider this. <laughs> Consider this political uh, analogy. It's like the poor, downtrodden uh, street urchins, Palestinians versus the powerful Israelis with better weapons and more money. But you have no moral equivalence there. Your moral compass is broken if you side with the less powerful Palestinians in that conflict just because they are the underdog. On, On the basis of morality alone, who is right and who is wrong? That's the relevant question. Now, if if Israel renounced all of its military weapons, what would happen? The Palestinians through Hamas would destroy the state of Israel. But if the Palestinians renounced all their weapons and ceased launching terrorist attacks on Israel, there would be peace. In other words, the less powerful one cannot automatically claim the moral high ground, and the more powerful one is not necessarily always the villain. But I suppose it's just human nature to think to think so okay so everyone at the studio loved hal roach that's a given that's a fact if if you knew these people and i knew more than a hundred of them hal roach studios alumni everyone expressed loyalty to 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 Hal Roach, everyone except in time for one person, and it was Stan Laurel. Beginning from the time Laurel caused so much trouble trying to make Babes in Toyland, mm. thereafter their friendship was strained, never the same until Roach finally had to fire Laurel. The nominal reason uh, given was for violating the morals clause in his in his contract, but it was much more than that. And you, and you have to read the men of War essay for those details. But fans today who were never there, and again I wasn't there, who did not work at Hal Roach Studios, they just assume that the boss there, like all bosses, must have been a villain, and therefore in any controversy these fans will naturally take the side of the actor whom they love, Mm -hmm. understandably love and identify with. Who doesn't love and identify with Stan Laurel? So again, I cover this in, in the forthcoming monograph for Men of War. Now, fans may be surprised at what they read, but what they read there are facts and the truth that they themselves can verify. And again, <clears throat> was Stan Laurel's memory any better than Hal Roach's? There is ample evidence to show it was not, <clears throat> starting with correspondence. Yet, yet all of that is beside the point I want to make now. Okay, so a studio is making a film. A location manager finds a shootable Suiting space, shooting space. He gets he gets an approval from the producer, and uh, he, he closes a deal with the owner of that property, wherever it is, whatever it is. In our case, one of the editors to be assigned to big business was, as we've covered, Bill Terhune. He owned a rental property, which may have been vacant at the time. We think it was. So therefore, it's available. In any case, the studio settles on that house. Then a crew goes out to inspect and to prep the location for shooting. Just the crew, not the actors, not the actors. That's why Laurel was not present when the damage happened. Why the crew stopped at the wrong look-alike house is unknown and will never be known, but but they 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 do stop at the wrong house. Now no one is home, no one is supposed to be home because they've been told that um, now, what Hal told me was was that the crew members necessarily they had they, they they had to prep the house when they went there. But and it was just the crew with the director. Now, now Hal said they had a photo of the bungalow in question, and many in that neighborhood look alike. These bungalows look alike, especially on that side of Motor on Dunleer. Now, why they they didn't also have a house number that baffles me. All I know is what Hal knew, and all he knew, is that they were guided by a photograph. That's what he was told.
1: Mm.
2: So none of the activity so far is going to be reflected on casting call sheets. So what they reflect is irrelevant. Also, to this point, as mentioned, none of the actors are required to visit the location at the outset. They are not present when the crew first goes there. The crew gets there. The key to the house doesn't work, however. These geniuses in the crew, they reason that it hardly matters because uh, they have to break the door down anyway. Then they proceed to prep the house. They change things, they set things up for action. I don't know what all they do, but somehow the house sustains other probably minor damage uh, before it is ready for scenes to be shot uh, in the coming days. They, they make alterations, which I guess constitutes some kind of damage. Now, at some point, probably within a day or two, it came to light that they damaged the wrong house. Damage of some sort. To what point, I don't know. But, but Hal Roach, as the producer, has to pay for the damage. He has to pay for two houses. Now, when you have to write a second check for something like that, that's a, that's a mistake you don't forget. <laughs> so the damage was probably slight. Otherwise, it would have been a larger story around the lot, and everyone, including Stan Law, would have known about it. Yeah. Well so maybe Laurel did know at the time and forgot it later because it wasn't important to him. We we can't say it at this late date. So yeah. those are the facts as best I understand what actually happened. Now fast forward to the late 1970s. I was living in New York, but when I would visit LA as I, I often did, I stayed at Hal Roach's house. Now one night there was a there was a dinner party. I I have the details and notes somewhere, but from memory alone, I can't recall who was there or what this one particular story was uh, that Hal Hal told. But it it didn't matter. The point is that it did not comport with the facts as I knew them, as a know-it-all film historian (laughs) that I was at the time, know-it-all. So I knew what he was saying was not correct. So when everyone went home as diplomatically as possible, I covered this with Hal. I was a little stunned by his response. And, and the dim bulb in my brain suddenly got really bright. <laughs> oh, a light was turned on above my head. He said, in a straightforward, matter-of-fact way, he wasn't correcting me, he wasn't scolding me, but this is what he said. But Dick, my version makes a better story. <laughs> suddenly, it was all clear to me. The light went on above my, my head. Hal Roach, like the other producers, directors, and writers in Hollywood who created entertainment for us, was not a reporter, Mm -hmm. not an author recording important events, not a film historian. He wasn't filing a story for the 10 o'clock news. He wasn't writing an article for for, uh, the newspaper that an editor had to to vet. He wasn't a serious film history professor professor uh, writing a book or lecturing on structuralism or semiology for some graduate film history course. And, and, and he wasn't providing testimony under oath in a criminal or, 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 or a civil trial. No, he was a producer. What does a producer do? He creates entertainment. How does he do it? He takes actual incidents, maybe from the news, maybe from something he reads or sees, and he adapts it. He embellishes it for entertainment purposes in the medium where he is working, the movies. He adapts it. it, It's it's the hand-swiveling gesture from Wrong Again, the the origin for which I explain in the little Men of War book we're doing. So, So Hal Roach was doing this his entire life, and he explained for me how he learned this lesson from his blind grandfather on his mother's side. His blind grandfather used to keep all the neighborhood kids back in Elmira spellbound with the stories he told the pre-adolescent Hal and his, his little friends. Now, how did he do it? The grandfather would take well-known events, <clears throat> classic literature stories, and he adapted them. He he distilled them, he reworked them, so that little kids could understand and be entertained and learn from them. Now, Hal didn't realize this until he was grown older and, and encountered and recognized what the sources for all those tales had been that his his grandfather told. And and again, it's it's all spelled out in the Men of War piece, how how Hal would conceive an idea for a short based on something that had actually happened in real life or something he saw in a dramatic film. Then he'd tell the writers, now if we twisted this for comedy purposes and he performed that wrong again hand gesture, if we twisted this for comedy purposes, here is how that would be funny now he was trying to entertain movie audiences with his next film just as he was trying to entertain the little gathering of friends at his home that evening when he told this story yeah Just, just as he was trying to entertain any audience that he had when people would ask him about films and in this case big business quote my version makes a better story that's what interested him the story yeah. about the incident is what interested him, not the literal, factual, actual incident. But he didn't make it up. It was based on something that actually happened. And again, he's a producer. He deals in stories. He's entertaining you. He's not testifying under oath in a murder trial. These films may be <laughs> life and death to some of us, yeah. and, and, and they're life and death to you and me. But, but he, he made them as disposable entertainment. That's how the entire industry thought back then. He, yeah. took, he took facts, as, as I've outlined them here, and, and adapted them for entertainment by embellishing what had actually happened. That's what he was doing. So it's unfair to jump on Hal Roach thinking, oh, he's, he's lying or he's making up nonsense. That's what he did his entire career, after all. <laughs> And and, and after all, that's why we have these great movies to enjoy today. They all started from ideas that that he would share with writers, and then they'd take it from there. So so if he started telling that story to friends in 1929, where he was having fun at his own expense, because he had to pay twice for two houses. As with any story or anecdote, when you repeat it, and this man repeated it and polished it and refined it as a function of the reaction he got, for more than 60 years, for Christ's sake. You see what people like and laugh at, so that's what you go with as you
1: yeah.
2: polish the story through the years. Don't we all do that with any favorite story we have? Look, look at the stories that Leo McCary would tell, both to Peter Bogdanovich and on This Is Your Life, Laurel and Hardy. We can see, okay, the, here's the germ of truth in what he's saying, yeah. but he's he, like Hal Roach, was entertaining an audience. These, these were creative people, producers, directors, writers, Entertaining audiences, what they did. Now, knowing we were going to talk about this, I, I pulled out an old VHS recording where Hal told the story on TV. And I found it interesting that he never once, at least in, on this occasion, he never once mentioned the names of Laurel and Hardy. The interviewer mentioned Laurel and Hardy and asked about this because he knew what the story was. He mentioned Laurel and Hardy. Hal Roach didn't mention Laurel and Hardy because they weren't there when this happened. Yeah, yeah. But people naturally assumed, as I would too, as everyone would naturally, that Hal was talking about Laurel and Hardy themselves causing this damage. Again, Hal wasn't a reporter. He wasn't a know-it-all film historian. He was a producer. A producer has to be creative in telling stories he develops intert- it, as entertainment uh, uh, on film. That was that was his job: find stories, create entertainment, create movies. Big business was one, and so is the big business story: entertainment. Or as Hal Hal would say, whenever he uh, slowed down to explain something for me, he'd say, "Is that clear? Is that clear?" <laughs> there was more than, more more a command than a question. But yes, <laughs>
1: but, <laughs> that's enough for that now. But, but anyway,
2: that's my story. And, and I'm and I'm stuck in it as Stan wants so
1: so so just so just to be clear then so what what we're saying the facts are as, as far as as Hal is concerned so the the studio guys went down to prep the house with a photograph of William Hune's house and they picked another house that looked similar yes broke broke the door down and essentially that was the that was the repair that he had to pay for is that sort of whatever damage they did getting into the house?
2: Well whatever, whatever else they did to prep the house and I don't know what that entailed it probably maybe, entailed. maybe pulling
1: off the numbers and yeah all that kind of stuff yeah the, yeah
2: I, I really don't know what they would have done but there probably were other things that they did. The well, probably
1: like pulling pulling out the door, you know, because obviously when uh, when they pull out the um, the doorbell and all that kind of stuff, I was thinking that that came off very easily, and the and the lantern comes off very easily. So obviously that's all got to be prepped and 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 set up. So there's I, probably quite a bit of stuff that's been ripped off.
2: Here's, here's, here's another thing: if you've got cameras, I think that uh, Stevens and Roach set up their cameras probably on the sidewalk. Mm. So if you've got trees in the way, you're going to have to tear those trees out of there. Mm. I mean yeah, something like that. It just as a that's a wild guess. That's an example. They had to do something to prep that house. And whatever they did, they did enough to constitute damage, that they had to pay somebody for, gotcha. for, gotcha. for two houses. So as I've tried to explain for, for decades, but believing now that the entire world must know the backstory, story, but, but they don't. And sometimes um, there, <laughs> there was one exchange on Facebook, <clears throat> that went on and on and on with people interposing ridiculous questions and objections to the point where I felt like I was addressing the prison class in Pardon Us.
0: Good morning to you, good morning to you, good morning dear teacher, good morning to you. <laughs>
2: really. So, uh, and, and, and another thing, um, long long ago when I, f- I first learned that there was the Zillow controversy, I, I asked Hal about it and he told me the backstory but he was bad with names, always bad with names. He was friends with so many people. He couldn't remember who owned the house, but he told me it was somebody who worked at the studio. So I went and got a roster of employees and I read them off one by one until we got to William (laughs) Turhune. So, I mean, I knew the owner's name before before anyone. But if you you knew this man, maybe you can tell seeing him in in interviews. I couldn't grill this man. I wouldn't dare have tried to, uh, like you see, hostile reporters doing a, a, at a White House uh, press briefing with the president, any president, I couldn't ask him like he was on the witness stand. Uh, well, where exactly was this house anyway? And uh, who owned it? Uh, when was it built? How many bedrooms? How much did you have to pay for the damage on it? Where's the canceled check? Um, because how could <laughs> somebody who did not suffer fools kindly yeah. I spent I spent two afternoons with Billy Wilder, and I thought the same thing with him. Um, if you couldn't follow whatever his fast mind was racing through, he was not going to stop and cater to you because you couldn't keep up. Neither <laughs> man would stop to hand feed you answers to questions. If 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 Hal Roach thought you were grilling him like that, you'd get blown right out of the room faster than Laurel and Hardy leave town and way out west. <laughs> I always had to be careful because he was capable of.
1: Uh, That's really it. So, so when you, so if you have, uh, you know, a film that you want to ask him about, how would you would you have to sort of approach that quite cleverly and get him talking about it in a roundabout kind of way, or, or did you? Did, absolutely, you... A-
2: absolutely. He would oblige. A lot of people uh, would call him, want to talk to him, want to mm. meet him. So he would oblige them, and he'd give them a certain amount of time. Like I know, Randy always tells the story when he and Jordan Young first went to do their interview. Uh, they sat down with him, and he looked at them right in the eye. And I guess he said, "You have 45 minutes." <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, he was in charge of everything all the time. Um, so no, he and he did not live in the past. That's the really important thing to understand. Yeah. When he would tell these stories. He would tell them only to illustrate some point. I'd have to trick him, trick him into talking about the things that I wanted to deal with because he did not live in the past. And after, he would only oblige you so long. And here's what I would hear him say so many times. Well, let's get back to the present.
1: <laughs>
2: you know, if you, you probably heard about the time I, I, I tricked him into... Um, uh, stopping by the big business house. Did I tell you that story? No, I don't think not, so. Not, no. not, the big, not the big business house, the music box steps. Okay, no, I don't think so. He, he would call me and say, um, uh, what are you doing this morning? What are you doing this afternoon? Uh, what are you doing for dinner tonight? How, how'd you like to go murder some birds? I want to give <laughs> my dog Tripper a workout. So we drive to Chino and we'd rent game birds, chuckers, pheasants, and ducks. And I throw them to their doom into the air, and Hal would blow the hell out of them. If he missed, then I then then I had my turn. And 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 you know we bring we bring these birds back to the house, and his housekeeper would cook them up for dinner. You'd have to uh, be careful not to uh, break a tooth chewing <laughs> on the, the the pellets. You'd have to spit out the pellets. Uh, but but on the way back, Hal was very impatient. Always impatient. And so he, we were in some traffic on the, on the freeway, and he started barking our orders, oh, let's get off the freeway. Let, what do you say? Let's... So we did get off the freeway, and pretty soon we we're on side streets, and I realized where we were. We were in the Silver Lake District. And I thought, oh my god, this is my opportunity. <laughs> I mean, the music box steps with him. So, yeah. <laughs> so we get real close to it, and I say to him, uh, did you ever visit the music box uh, steps? No. Would you like to uh, stop by and 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 see what they look like today? Well, if it'll it'll only take a minute or two, so he was going to tolerate that, and and so we stopped by the steps, got out of the car, and I and I you know we talked about it for a while, and then I said, um, "Why do you say we jog up to the top?" <laughs> just just making conversation, being funny, <laughs> and he said, uh, "Let's see you do it first. <laughs> now I realized because i'm in really good shape for an old guy and i thought oh, I, I can do this uh and then i then i thought a second time about it and i realized you know if i run all the way up to the top of these stairs that's going to take some time he is capable of getting into that car and driving away <laughs> he really was so but again so he, he didn't live in the past and and you really did, as you say, you really <clears throat> did have to be careful on how you broach these questions, because yeah. he was only going to oblige you so long.
1: Yeah,
2: exactly. But I, so, so, so he made these films, and, and as he was doing the work, the, these films were almost, as we said before, life and death to him, the way they are to us now. At the time, while he was working on them, but once they're in the can, out of yeah. out, out of out of the lot, on their way to movie theaters, he was on to the next one, and pretty mm-hmm. much. Never gave the finished film any thought again after that. He didn't live in the past. I do. He did not. Now, there's one more thing, and then I'm through. One more thing, uh, the, the last thing, I promise. This is maybe just a curious coincidence. I have a 16-millimeter print of a 1921 Snub Pollard short called On Location. Charlie Chase directed it. Snub plays a gardener with OCD. No, no one is home at the house uh, where Snub is working when along comes a film crew in need of just such a front yard to stage a scene. Turns out Snub gives permission, which it, 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 isn't, it isn't his to give. <laughs> Turns out that they're going to stage a battle scene. Uh, and of course they wreck the house. Uh, but as they talk him into giving this permission, they keep saying to him, but it's all for art's sake. And after the, the company wrecks the house, just as the owner returns, Snub pleads his case with the owner, who looks at the, his ruined front yard and his ruined house. But it was all for art's sake, and I couldn't help think of big business.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So there you are. That's, That's brilliant. All there, is. there isn't more.
1: Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm well, sure, I'm well, sure I'm, there is.
2: There's plenty more, but as I say, Randy will cover or has covered. Yes, we've already talked to him. All the important stuff. This is just trivia.
1: Brilliant. Richard, thank you so much for spending time with me again. I, I I well I just sit here and listen as a as a fan, and it's lovely to be able to just listen to all this um this magic that you impart because it's so it's so rare to find somebody with knowledge as in depth as yours. So thank you so much again for uh for being with us.
2: Well I pretty much wasted my life accumulating all this information. <laughs>
1: it's not a waste. It is not a waste, not at all. No, no, There there are so many, so many of us, and you know, I I get comments quite regularly. Um, complimenting the podcast, but especially on on the guests and and your name always crops up. Uh, People really appreciate um, the time that you spend with us. And as I say, all all the information that you can pass on because there are so few of us now or few of you, I guess, that have those experiences and that that information. Um, So we just sort of sit here and and soak it all Well,
2: Randy is much better than I am at sharing it. I never amassed all this uh to, to share it or to publish it i just wanted to know i wanted a connection to these films but randy is the one who's really good it's it's his mission in life i think to make converts to to share all this with uh with people he's the one who does a really good job at uh proselytizing for laurel and hardy and you know, try, try. I mean, I'm trying to keep the films alive in my own way, but he, he's the he's the one who's really, you know, sh- sharing everything that he knows. He wants to share it with everybody.
1: Yeah. No, he's brilliant. He's he's uh, he is a treasure. But uh, no, I mean, you you are both uh, you doing a fabulous job in in just sort of securing and furthering Stan and Babe's legacy, and uh, and, and you know, and to be able to. Um, to be able to, for me to be a part of that as well, and to try in my small way to keep it going, it's just uh, it's a real honor. So, uh, thank you so much for for supporting the podcast, Richard. It's And hopefully, we'll we'll be able to get you on uh, a few more times.
2: Maybe. So I, I don't know what we're gonna. I don't know how we're gonna. For, for Men of War, <clears throat> I don't know how to do that because I just want to say to people, just read read this monologue. <laughs> That's right.
1: That's right that's right well maybe we'll do an audio version maybe we'll record you could read it out to us all and we can uh, have a nice bedtime story of men of war either
2: either that or 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 we'll put you to work and you'll have to uh frame a bunch of questions because i wouldn't know how to approach it having because i would just say
1: well this is it you've bled it dry yes i know what you're saying you put everything into that haven't you everything yeah <laughs> well we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it
2: yeah there is a bridge in uh in in hollandbeck park but <laughs>
1: well it was
2: it, it, it was yeah it's not there anymore
1: <laughs>
2: i don't know i don't know why they took it down either i don't know why
1: uh, progress it's progress Richard. progress
2: progress or maybe maybe they're afraid of more people like carol lloyd did in Haunted Spooks trying to commit suicide jumping into the water
1: but <laughs> yes, I, that's in, right. as i
2: as i point out in the men of war essay um charlie chase filmed dollar dizzy there and in that film he stands in the middle of the lake and you can see the water only comes up to his knees
1: yeah <laughs> I mean, he wasn't yeah. Gonna,
2: he wasn't going to drown in that water <laughs>
1: that's brilliant
2: so anyway there Bridget, you are. that's all there is
1: that's all there is there isn't any more it's brilliant thank you so much richard and uh, uh, yeah we'll speak to you soon
2: yes sir mm-hmm.
1: So, there you have it. That concludes episode 31, and with it, our deep dive into a highlight of the boys' film career, Big Business. I hope you enjoyed both episodes, and now are a little clearer about what really happened during Christmas week 1928. I'd love to hear your thoughts, so please do get in touch on the Bloghead's Facebook page, uh, or you can email me at theboys at laurelandhardyfilms.com. So, as usual, thank you to my fantastic guests over the past two shows, Randy Skretvet and today's guest, Richard W. Ban. Uh, thank you to the Bohunks Orchestra and Buster Music for the wonderful music. And a special thank you to you for listening and for your support. And until next time, it's goodbye from him.
0: Goodbye.
1: Goodbye from him. Goodbye. And it's a very goodbye from me. Goodbye.